Lord's Day 8. Right column towards the bottom. Lord's Day 7 concludes with the Apostles' Creed. And then we come to Lord's Day 8. And it asks the question, how are these articles divided into three parts? God the Father and our creation. God the Son and our deliverance. And God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. These three distinct persons are one true eternal God. Now please open God's word. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. Our catechism reminds us that's how God has revealed himself in his word. And uh, we find that in Matthew chapter 3. My approach this morning may be uh, a little different than my ordinary approach. We're looking at it a little more topically than I ordinarily would do. But we're going to read Matthew 3 and uh, verses 16 and 17 in particular. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when, they saw, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This 
is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So far the reading of God's holy word. Contramundum. What does it mean? And what does it matter? The doctrine of the Trinity has been vigorously debated in the history of the early church. In fact, it created one of the greatest controversies that has ever troubled the Christian church. The two men who were at the center of the controversy were Arius and Athanasius. They were both presbyters in the church in Alexandria, intelligent men and capable teachers. But Athanasius and Arius were poles apart in their understanding of the nature of God. The difference between them was not trivial theological hair splitting. It touched upon the very heart of the Christian faith. Arius taught that while Christ was somewhat like God, he was not fully God. He said that Christ was the first and highest of all created beings and that he did not exist from eternity. He claimed that Christ was not the same substance or essence as the Father. Arius taught that he was a creature, the highest of creatures, but nothing more than a creature. Arius was a very captivating preacher. However, in his sermons, he never called Jesus the eternal only Son of God. Arius taught that there was a time when Christ was not the Son of God. There was a time that he did not exist. He said that if the Son was God as well as the Father, it would mean that there are two gods. And if Christians believe in two gods, they would be falling back into pagan polytheism. Athanasius, on the other hand, taught that Christ is very God. He said that man's salvation was at stake in this matter. The value of Christ's saving work depended upon what kind of a person he is. Athanasius said that man's condition was so utterly hopeless that he cannot save himself. Only God can save him. Therefore, if Jesus is not God, he cannot be our Savior. Athanasius said, Jesus, whom I know as my Redeemer, cannot be less than God. Jesus, whom I know as my Redeemer, cannot be less than God. Perhaps some of you remember from studying church history that the Arian controversy raged for a long time and with great intensity. Bloody street fights erupted in Alexandria between the followers of Athanasius and the followers of Arius. The controversy spread throughout Egypt and eventually became so intense that the entire Eastern Empire was in commotion. Eventually, at the Council of Nicaea in 325, the views of Arius were condemned as heresy and a statement of the true doctrine of the person of Christ was adopted as the faith of the church. That statement was later refined somewhat and became known as the Nicene Creed. This creed confessed that Christ is 
Very God of very God, begotten, not created, being of one substance with the Father. By the grace of God, the church held to the deity of Christ. The Council of Nicaea, however, did not bring the controversy to an end. It continued with such intensity that the church was almost torn to pieces. At times, the Arians prevailed and Athanasius was banished. Of the 46 years of his ministry as Bishop of Alexandria, Athanasius spent 20 years in exile, banished by the emperor. He was accused of being a disturber of the peace and a troubler of Israel. Sound familiar? That's what wicked King Ahab called Elijah, troubler of Israel. But even when it seemed as though the whole world was against him, Athanasius stood like a rock for the truth of Christ's absolute divinity. He is remembered for the words, Athanasius contra mundum. Athanasius contra mundum. Athanasius against the world. He was willing to stand alone for the sake of the truth of Christ's absolute divinity. He regarded the deity of Christ as the cornerstone of the edifice of the Christian faith without which there is no redemption. Athanasius was raised up by God at a critical time to stand in the gap in defense of the truth. Through him and others, the essential doctrine of the deity of Christ and the Trinity were preserved. Forty-six years after the Council of Nicaea, another council was held known as the Council of Constantinople. The Nicene Creed had said nothing about the deity of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the Council of Constantinople was held to declare its belief in the deity of the Spirit. Thankfully, by the guidance of God, the biblical doctrine of the Trinity was maintained. But brothers and sisters, as you are well aware, the heresy of Arius continues to rear its ugly head also today. Various cults continued to deny the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. From the literature of the Jehovah's Witnesses, two of whom I had in my study here a week ago, from their literature we find statements such as these, I quote, Such doctrine is not of God. The obvious conclusion is that Satan is the originator of the Trinity doctrine. Sincere persons who want to know the true God and serve Him find it a bit difficult to love and worship a complicated, freakish-looking, three-headed God. It goes on. The Trinity doctrine was not conceived by Jesus or the early Christians. This is another of Satan's attempt to keep God-fearing persons from learning the truth of Jehovah and His Son, Christ Jesus. No, there is no Trinity. Such doctrine is altogether foreign to true Christianity. Any trying to reason out the Trinity teaching leads to confusion of mind, end quote. There is no place in the biblical, for the biblical doctrine of the Trinity in Jehovah's Witnesses theology. The same is true of Mormonism. Its founder, Joseph Smith, clearly rejected the Trinity. 
You see, brothers and sisters, the Arian heresy is still alive and well today. There are religious groups who use Christian language and phrases that sound biblical. They will come to your door with a smile on their face and a Bible in their hand. But they are seriously in error with respect to their view of the doctrine of God. And this is a central issue in Christianity. The doctrine of God, the person and work of Jesus Christ, and the person and work of the Holy Spirit. If you're wrong on these doctrines, you will lose your soul for eternity. A Jehovah's Witness can go door to door until his shoes and socks are worn out and his feet blistered, but it will not bring him one step closer to the kingdom. It will not save his soul from hell. If he's wrong on this doctrine, he's hopelessly lost and will perish eternally. We need to rightly understand what Scripture teaches about the character of God. So today I want us to consider Matthew 3, 16 and 17, where we see the Trinity revealed at the baptism of Jesus. Look with me, please, in your Bibles to Matthew 3 and verse 16. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The revelation of the Trinity that we find in these verses and in other New Testament verses was somewhat veiled in the Old Testament. For example, in Genesis 1:26, God speaks of himself in the plural. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They are plural pronouns which alert us to multiple persons in the Godhead. Likewise, at the building of the Tower of Babel, recorded in Genesis 11, we read, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language. Although these two passages in Genesis do not provide a full revelation of the doctrine of the Trinity, they do point to plurality in the Godhead. It begins to lay the groundwork, the groundwork for what follows in the rest of Scripture. When reading the Old Testament, we need to bear in mind the progressive character of God's revelation. There are truths that first appear in germinal form. Later, these truths are expanded and clarified. Augustine said, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. This is certainly applicable when it comes to the Trinity. Would you turn with me for just a moment in your Bibles to Psalm 33? Psalm 33, and look down to verse 6. Psalm 33 and verse 6. We read these words. Hold it open there for a moment. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord... The heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Now keep it there for a moment. 
In light of the New Testament, we see all three persons of the Trinity in this one verse. Creation is the work of the triune God. The Word is Jesus Christ. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. The pre-incarnate Christ was there at creation. Without Him nothing was made that was made. By the Word of the Lord the heavens were made. And then together with Christ, there was also the Holy Spirit present at creation. Look again at Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. That word breath is elsewhere translated as spirit. The same word is used in Genesis 1-2 where it says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Job 26.13 says, by his Spirit he adorned the heavens. And so Psalm 33.6, we have the Word, Jesus Christ, we have the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is Yahweh, and we have the breath of His mouth, the Spirit of God. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. Creation is the result of the work of the triune God, Yahweh, the word and the breath of His mouth. And so, congregation, although it was somewhat veiled, without a doubt the Trinity was introduced in the Old Testament. Even Deuteronomy 6, which is sometimes appealed to to disprove the Trinity, has within it a veiled reference, it seems, to this very doctrine. Deuteronomy 6.4 says what? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, those who oppose the doctrine of the Trinity say, see, see, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This passage rules out the Trinity. But brothers and sisters, it's interesting to note that the word for one is a word which, which means not one in isolation, but one in unity. Theologians have pointed out that the, that word one is never used in the Hebrew Bible of a stark singular entity. For example, it's the word used when speaking of one bunch of grapes. Or in saying that the people of Israel responded as one people. After God brought Adam, his wife, the text goes on to say, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh, Genesis 2.23. Again, the word one is not meant to suggest that the man and the woman were to become one person. And so the word one in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, does not necessarily rule out the Trinity at all. It is not one in isolation, but one in unity. 
God is one God. But there is a plurality within the Godhead. And so the historic formulation of the Trinity is that God is one in essence and three in person. But congregation, although the doctrine of the Trinity is somewhat veiled in the Old Testament, it is unveiled in the New. It is unveiled in the New. In our text, go back to Matthew. In our text, Jesus left Nazareth of Galilee and made his way to the Jordan to be baptized by John. He was 30 years old, and he was ready to begin his public ministry. Now, without going into the meaning and mode of Jesus' baptism today, we'll save that for another time, I want to direct your attention to this remarkable revelation of the Trinity. At the baptism of the Son, the Father spoke from heaven, and the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove. In these verses, both the Spirit and the Father bore witness to the Son and gave their expression of approval. Let's take a few minutes to consider the Son, the Spirit, and the Father. While the doctrine of the Trinity strongly maintains that there is one God, it also vigor vigorously maintains that the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and the Father is God. First of all, the Bible clearly teaches that the Son is God. The Son is God. Long before his birth in Bethlehem and his baptism at the Jordan, the prophets declared the deity of Christ. The prophet Isaiah said in the ninth chapter, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, what? Mighty God. Mighty God. In the 40th chapter, Isaiah also said, quoted in part here in Matthew 3.3, 3, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, referring to John the Baptist, Prepare the way of the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God, referring to Jesus Christ, Lord, Yahweh, and God. In the seventh chapter of Isaiah, the prophet declared, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. The prophet Micah proclaimed, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Micah said that the Messiah would be truly human, and that he would come forth out of Bethlehem, but he would also be truly divine, in that his goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Micah said that the Messiah never had a beginning. He has always been. He was there from before the beginning of time. The Lord Jesus existed long before his coming in the flesh. He existed from eternity. He took part in creation. He appeared in a pre-incarnate form many times in the Old Testament. He appeared to Abraham. He spoke to Jacob. He appeared to Joshua. He spoke to Gideon. 
There were many occasions in the Old Testament in which the Messiah appeared to people before his incarnation. His goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Therefore, congregation, when John baptized Jesus in the Jordan, he was not just baptizing another man, another sinner, another Israelite. He was baptizing the eternal Son of God who had taken on human flesh. This was the one in whom all the ancient prophecies were fulfilled. This was the one whom Isaiah called Mighty God, Emmanuel, God with us. This was the one of whom Micah declared his goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. When John baptized Jesus, it marked the inauguration of his public ministry. He was publicly set apart for the task to which he had been called. From this moment on, his true identity was increasingly revealed. He began to exercise the prerogatives of God, such as forgiving sins, raising the dead, and accepting worship reserved only for God. However, the great tragedy of Israel was that they would not receive him as the eternal Son of God. The majority rejected his claims and would not show him the honor that he deserved. And brothers and sisters, this was not only the tragedy of Israel, but it is also the tragedy of many in our own day. How many people today refuse to acknowledge the divinity of Jesus? There are theologians not only among the cults, but also in some mainline Protestant churches today who reject the deity of Christ. This is a fatal error. For if Jesus is not fully divine, then our salvation is not accomplished and his entire earthly ministry was of little value. If he was not fully divine, we have no salvation. Now, I want you to notice how the Spirit of God showed His approval of the Son. And how the Spirit of God came upon the Son to equip Him for His earthly ministry. Verse 16 says, let's go there, verse 16 says that when Jesus came up from the water, behold, the heavens were opened to Him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. At the inauguration of Jesus' ministry, the Spirit gave a visible manifestation of his presence. Why he came in the form of a dove is uncertain. This is the only place where the Holy Spirit is depicted as a dove. Some have suggested that the dove symbolized purity peacefulness and graciousness. This would then indicate the gentleness that characterized Jesus' ministry. Others have suggested that the dove was the bird of sacrifice for the Jews. The dove, in this case, would indicate that Jesus was being empowered by the Spirit to equip him for the task of self-sacrifice, the dove being the bird of sacrifice. 
Another explanation which I personally favor is that the dove, the dove is a reminder of the most well-known dove in the Old Testament. The one that was sent out by Noah to look for dry ground after the flood. That dove brought back to Noah the first fruit of a new creation as it returned to the ark with a freshly plucked olive leaf in her mouth. And then, when the dove did not return to the ark, Noah knew that God's judgment was past. Noah's dove symbolized the completion of God's judgment and the beginning of a new creation. Noah's dove symbolized the completion of God's judgment and the beginning of a new creation. Brothers and sisters, perhaps when the dove came down upon Jesus, it was as though God was saying, man has failed, Israel has failed, but through Jesus, a new creation has come to life. And through him, my judgment is past. Jesus is the one who makes all things new, the one through whom creation is restored. Congregation, if your trust is in Jesus Christ, then the judgment is past, and you may receive the blessings of the new creation. As Noah's dove symbolized the completion of God's judgment and the beginning of a new creation, so the dove descending upon Jesus symbolized the fact that through him, the judgment is taken out from us and we are heirs of a new creation. Heirs of a new creation. Verse 16 says that after Jesus' baptism, what happened? The heavens were opened. Through faith in him, we have access to the inexpressible joys of heaven to be with our God. Access to heaven is through faith in him alone. Well, brothers and sisters, it is evident that the Spirit coming upon Jesus at his baptism was for the purpose of approving and empowering him for his messianic ministry. You see, the Son was not only divine, he was also fully human. Because he was human, he needed to be empowered for the task that God had given him. He needed strength for ministry. Speaking of the Messiah, the prophet Isaiah said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, Isaiah 61. Jesus was anointed with a spirit at his baptism to empower him in his humanness to preach, heal, proclaim liberty and to open prisons. Peter said in Acts 10, 38, that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Jesus was anointed with the Spirit at his baptism so that in his humanity he was given strength for service and ministry. 
But then the question has also been asked, who or what is the Holy Spirit? Who or what is the Holy Spirit? Jehovah's Witnesses speak of him as an impersonal force, an it. They deny the personality and deity of the Holy Spirit. But again, the scriptures are not ambiguous on this matter. The Bible clearly identifies the Holy Spirit as God. Turn with me for just a moment to Acts chapter 5. Acts 5. You children know this story. It's a familiar one. Ananias and Sapphira had sold a possession and kept back some of the proceeds. They lied about the amount that they laid at the apostles' feet. Then look at verse 3 of Acts 5. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Now go to the end of verse 4. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. In verse 3, Peter said, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And in verse 4, he said, you've not lied to men, but to God. Lying to the Holy Spirit is equated with lying to God. The Holy Spirit, like the Father and the Son, is true and eternal God. This is confirmed by other passages of Scripture where the Holy Spirit is put on an equal footing with God the Father and God the Son. We find this, for example, in the baptismal formula of Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. One name, one name, three persons. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force, an it. He is a person. He is fully divine. With the Father and the Son, He is to be honored, prayed to, worshipped, and glorified. So, brothers and sisters, when the heavens parted, and the Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. It was the third person of the Godhead expressing His approval of the Son, and the third person of the Godhead empowering the Son for His messianic ministry. But then notice thirdly that in the baptism of Jesus, the Father Himself was also active. The Father Himself was also active. Look to verse 17, Matthew 3. 17. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It was not only the visible symbol of a dove that confirmed Jesus in his messianic task, but it was also the audible voice of the Father. He declared his great love for the Son, a love that existed between them from eternity. The voice of the Father was the guarantee of, of his full approval upon the mission of Christ to seek and to save the lost. 
His voice confirmed the Son as the mediator, substitute, and redeemer of sinners. Now, brothers and sisters, please hear this. In the Old Testament, the sacrifices that were offered had to be, what? Without blemish, pure and spotless, right? Exodus 12, 5 says, your lamb shall be without blemish. Leviticus 1, 3, let him offer a male without blemish. To offer anything blemished was totally unacceptable. And so when the Father spoke from heaven at the baptism of Jesus and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, the Father was affirming that this was the true and acceptable sacrifice. All the sacrifices offered up from Adam to John the Baptist were inadequate. They were only symbols and types which could not truly take away sins. But this man, whom John baptized at the River Jordan, he was approved by God the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He's the lamb without blemish, spot, or defect. The Father was well pleased with the perfection of Jesus. Dear friends, think about this for a moment. What a comfort these words can be for every child of God. You have nothing to offer, nothing to present, nothing of value to give Him. You are sinful, weak, and unrighteous. Anything you do is insufficient to merit His love. Frankly, you are a colossal failure, and so am I. Contemplating that could drive you to despair. But then let us remember these words of the Father spoken from heaven at the baptism of Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, the Father sees you through His beloved Son. If you are clothed in His righteousness, then He sees no spot in you. All your sins are gone and your iniquity wiped away. You are accepted in the beloved so that when God looks at you, He is well pleased. As God was well pleased with His beloved Son, so He's well pleased with all those for whom He died. In fact, that word beloved in verse 17, this is my beloved son, is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe God's love for his redeemed people. In Romans 1 verse 7, we read to all who are in Rome, beloved of God. When you read the New Testament epistles, you often come across that word, beloved, beloved, beloved of God. I can call you beloved, beloved in the Lord, to all who are in Elmer, beloved of God. Why? Why can I call you beloved of God? Because God looks upon you through His beloved Son. 
Ephesians 1, 6 says, He has made us accepted in the Beloved. He has made us accepted in the Beloved. Congregation, if you are a believer, you are a delight to the Father. Isn't that an amazing thought? Despite all your sins and failures, because of the beloved Son, the Father finds no imperfection in you. And because of the beloved Son, the Spirit of God dwells in you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are purchased by the Son, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and beloved of the Father. You are accepted and cherished by the triune God. Brothers and sisters, the doctrine of the Trinity is more than an intriguing theological package. It is a doctrine that should humble us all as we observe the work of the triune God in our salvation. You may not fully understand the mysterious character of God, for the doctrine of the Trinity goes far beyond our reach. But even though you may not fully understand it, you must believe it, because that is how God has revealed Himself in His Word. Worship the Father, worship the Son, worship the Holy Spirit, one only true God, one in essence and three in person. And if you have difficulty understanding it, know that a day is coming when these things will be made clearer. Until that day, love and serve this triune God. Say with the psalmist, who is like the Lord our God? Who is like the Lord our God? It's the ultimate rhetorical question that expects the resounding answer, no one. Nothing has ever existed or will ever exist that is remotely like him. And so by faith, you must believe that you are created and adopted by God the Father, delivered by God the Son, and sanctified by God the Spirit. These three distinct persons are one true eternal God. Contramundum. Are you willing to stand against the world for the sake of these truths? Contramundum. The hymn writer said, Glory be to God the Father. Glory be to God the Son. Glory be to God the Spirit. God Almighty, three in one. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory be to Him alone. Let us pray. Lord, our God, we acknowledge before you that we only scratch the surface. We consider who you are and how you have revealed yourself in your word. 
But we do thank you, Lord, for this revelation of your character at the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we are now accepted in the beloved. We thank you that, Lord, even as you spoke from heaven, affirming your love and acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ as that spotless lamb without blemish, that, Lord, now we may know that as you look upon us because of Jesus and as you look at us through Jesus, you also take pleasure in us that we are regarded as without spot, without blemish, because of the beloved. We thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit, who empowered Jesus for his messianic ministry, also dwells now in us, your people. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for working in us, for sanctifying us, for purging us of sin, for reminding us of our need of the righteousness of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that each and every person here would receive your truth with gladness, worship you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May our hope for eternity be rooted in all that you have done for us in the beloved. So receive our praises as we conclude. And may we, Lord, rejoice in that the judgment is past and we are heirs of a new creation. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. We thank you. We worship you. We love you. Amen.